Hello, friends, and welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. My name is Scott Cowan, and I'm the host of the show. Each episode, I have a conversation with an interesting guest who is living in or from Washington State. These are casual conversations with real and interesting people. I think you're going to like the show. So let's jump right in with today's guest. Welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Paula Boggs. Paula's back for a second visit with me, which is really exciting for me. And I have some follow-up questions to our original conversation. Paula, you and I sat down in early 2022 when we were still kind of in the COVID thing. We were all kind of, you know, stretching our arms, coming out of the cave, trying to figure out what the heck was going on post-pandemic. So that leaves me with some questions, but I'm going to do a quick recap so that my guests um, kind of know who you are. So here we go. So Paula was raised in Virginia, did her high school years in Europe, went to Johns Hopkins University, got her law degree from Berkeley. She ended her corporate career. We're just going to skip over the whole corporate career, but she ended her corporate career as the chief legal counsel for Starbucks Coffee. So far, right, Paula? So far, so good. All right. So here's the questions that pop up for me on this. Okay, but one last thing. So she she retired, I'll call it retired from Starbucks to pursue her musical career full-time. Okay. So I have a couple of questions. You mentioned in our original episode that you you grew up in a house music was there, but it was I you didn't give me the impression that it was a, a real musical household. I mean, it was music, the music was a component, but it was not the major feature of home. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was in a household of parents who valued music enough to make sure their kids got lessons. Mm-hmm. But no, it would, it, I could not describe my house as a musical household. Okay. So... The way you described your earlier childhood was in the segregated in Virginia. And then you moved to Europe, which seems very like jarring to me. <laughs> and in the, in our earlier conversation, you mentioned listening to when you moved to Europe and in Germany, you mentioned the band Kraftwerk, which is mm-hmm. kind of, you, you said EDM and I'm thinking electronica. You, so where I'm going with all this, I have two questions. So your musical influences and how they influence your music today and what exposure did you have as a, as a young, as a young person uh, to instruments? Where did you, when did you learn to play guitar? Do you play any other instruments? Great question. I, um, I just mentioned my parents valued us taking their kids, taking uh, music lessons. And that was absolutely the case for me. I'm the oldest of four kids. And the thing about my parents was they, they wanted each of us to play piano and started me at age six with that instrument. I didn't like it, Scott. And, you know, the adult me, understands better. It was more the teacher I didn't like mm-hmm. than the instrument. But nonetheless, I was not happy 
uh, with that instrument <laughs> as a six, okay. seven year old, etc. Meanwhile, I was attending Catholic school, yes, in the South, okay. but Catholic school nonetheless, and was doing so at a time when folk music was emerging in the Roman Catholic Church right after Vatican II. So what that meant for music was, you know, for the first time, uh, Catholic churches were not only playing music in the native tongue of whatever country that mass was taking place in, but began to embrace folk music. And so music that was certainly secular, the music of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, folks like that, the birds. But that music was finding its way into Catholic schools and Catholic churches, certainly across America. And so I got exposed to that music. And and one of the things... Um, there are two things about that kind of music that really spoke to, you know, little Paula. One was almost all of them featured a guitar. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, the guitar was a prominent sound in the music of these bands. And the second thing was the message these musicians were delivering. I mean, this was, this was message music uh, for the most part. And it really didn't matter whether you were talking about Simon and Garfunkel or the birds or somebody else. It, it was right. I was captured by that. And so by, by age 10, I had sort of cycled through uh, a couple different, uh, instruments there was a period of me and the clarinet that was short-lived but by by age 10 i was begging my parents to allow me to take guitar lessons and you know after you know purchasing a couple instruments they they could little afford and here's this 10 year old kid saying hey how about guitar they sort <laughs> they were cautious let, let's say that and uh made a deal with me which was if if i was going to own a guitar i was going to have to pay for half of it okay. which um which i internalized and 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 so scott as as i learned chords and and stuff on the guitar I would teach the neighborhood kids and and charge them a nickel, right? And before too long, I had amassed 20 bucks. And so I went to my mom and I said, I've I've earned 20 bucks. I'm ready to buy a guitar. And so we went to this pawn shop, really, uh, in downtown Richmond. And there there was an ad uh, about this used guitar and, and... that you know lured us in and of course that guitar was gone by the time we got there Uh, but there was another guitar 
and I ended up uh, playing it. Uh, the the guy let me play it. Uh, I loved it. It was more than forty bucks, but uh, my mom could see that I really loved it, and so we bought the guitar with, it was probably 50 bucks, right? So my mom okay. <laughs> chipped in 30 and I, I chipped in 20 and it, it was a Yamaha. That was my very first uh, guitar. And soon after learning guitar, I started writing music. So I mm-hmm. started playing guitar at age 10 and I started writing music at age 10 too. Okay. So that's that's a great setup. Let's go fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. Adult Paula. Yes. Do you play any other okay, other than a, a guitar or say a mandolin or things like that, do you play do you play piano now at all? I do you, not. You do not. So you're you're strictly a, a guitar player. That's it. Okay. That's, okay. That's fine. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned the birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel, and in those influences of the '60s and early '70s. And then you, you know, let's 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 bounce over here. Here's Paula with her guitar moving to Europe, and you're hearing craftwork, not real guitar-friendly music. Right. What, what, what did you think of? music in Europe during your high school years? That's a great question. And, but for the village, the the Petri dish I was living in, I don't think I would um, understand and, and love the diversity of music I do. You know, before we even left, the segregated South, I was, my dad was Catholic. My mom was uh, African Methodist Episcopal. So as a kid, I would toggle between these very different uh, religious traditions, uh, you know, so I would hear the folk music and the sort of Gregorian chant-like music of the Roman Catholic Church. But then the next week, I would be in the AME church with gospel and spirituals and that sort of thing and shouting and a, you know, a very exuberant, uh, worship. Uh, and so I went back and forth and that was my normal. When we moved to Europe, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, dramatic things beyond being in a different country and, within cultures we knew nothing about, including the U.S. military before we got there, um, we got exposed to, and I got exposed to, a lot of different kinds of music. My best friend, who became the, the girl then, woman now, who became my best friend, her parents were jazz heads. I mean, they... Were totally into jazz, but also in a broader range of what I would call folk rock music. And so I was I was hanging out with my friend Christine, 
and her parents, you know, would play stuff like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Keith Jarrett that, uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, stuff that I just, I wasn't hearing in my own home, but I was in theirs. And then the other thing about this family that was just foundational for me and what music is for me is when I was a teen, there were a lot of, perhaps it's still the case, but there were a lot of expat American musicians. So these were folks who hoped to do stuff with music and earn a living through music in Europe that they couldn't do in the United States. Americans. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, my friend's family was a magnet for a number of these people. So for the first time in my life as a teen, I was hanging out with professional jazz musicians and professional classical musicians mostly. And, and that affected me, right? That affected what music was for me, not just listening, but also performing. Meanwhile, there was a, there was a sort of brand of rock music that was emerging in Europe while I was a teen. And so all of those forces came together. And I guess I must add a a final one, which is, okay, so we're living within military communities and among GIs post-Vietnam, top 40 was really cool for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a as a music form catered to the American GI, there was a heavy dose of top 40 music. So I for example, I don't think but for living in that place, I would know who bands like Journey and Foreigner and stuff like that. <laughs> I wouldn't know those bands, but because I was living, you know, within this community, I do know those bands. Okay. It's the, there's this sonic booyah bass that you were exposed to. That's <laughs> absolutely. You know, yeah. Not all the, if you were to look at the ingredient list, you go, this isn't going to work well, but <laughs> you, you, you go ahead and you, you mix it all together and it does form this very, kaleidoscope of sound all right so we're going to pause music for a second because we're going to pick this music back up but there i still have questions from the previous episode that you i need you to answer for me so after after europe you go to johns hopkins yes why law oh that's a great question because law was not on my radar at all. I mean, there were a number of things that were. I mean, I came to Hopkins as an Army ROTC cadet. So the Army was paying for my college education. And in exchange, I was I was signing up for serving four years of active duty. So that was the 
bargain I cut with the army. Well, in the first episode, in the first episode, you, you mentioned that they kind of changed the terms on you and said, Hey, here's this airplane we want you to jump out of. Exactly. Um, So there was, that was that component that you shared with me last time. That was, I still chuckle when I think about that. Okay. Yeah. So So I did that. You know, I did the, the paratrooper thing, uh, between my junior and senior year of college and, and, with ROTC, I think for all of the armed services, they they send their cadets to what they call advanced camp. And it basically is six weeks of playing army in my case, right? Okay. Consoles and, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And so because I had gone to airborne school, paratrooper school immediately before that, I had lived nine weeks of someone telling me when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, how to eat, what to wear, how to wear it. So much so that, and I was so programmed that way. When I got back to Baltimore and Hopkins at the beginning of my senior year, I was struggling. I, <laughs> I, would, I would stand in front of my closet and not be able to make a decision on what to wear. I mean, it was, okay. I, I, I found myself paralyzed in many ways after that experience. And so I concluded, I'm not ready for active duty yet. I, okay. I need a delay strategy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I started fishing around and, and, you know, for, for, Folks like me at Hopkins, going to graduate school is not a radical idea. It, it, most people back then certainly did. They went to some form of graduate school, medical school, graduate school, law school, something. And okay. so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to go to graduate school for a couple years and delay the inevitable. Uh, if, if, uh, if it's a master's, then it'll be two years of delay and then I'll go in. But law is three years of delay. Uh, and uh, if I can, if I can, you know, pull that gig, then not only will I delay the inevitable for three years, but I'll go in as a lawyer rather than, you know, a quartermaster officer or field artillery or something. Right. And so that was right. my thinking. It was a, it was a, a bit of a scam. It was a delay strategy. And so, you know, when I left Starbucks almost 30 years after being a lawyer, that was the joke. I mean, this thing that started <laughs> as a scam, as a delay strategy, I had stayed in for more than a quarter of a century. So, all right. One of the questions that I have is, what type of law did you did you practice? That changed over time. Initially, okay. I was assigned to the Pentagon and was doing a variety of what what lawyers call administrative law. Uh, but um, I guess the best way to describe it 
there were a variety of things I were doing that um, in one way or another helped the army run better. Okay. Um, and so, um, one example of that is, I, you know, one of the jobs they give junior lawyers who, you know, they figure it's safe enough (laughs) for us is to review the applications of, of those families who wish their loved ones to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. There are certain requirements that fall, uh, and not everyone who meets the requirements is able to be buried there. And so one of the things I was doing was reviewing applications and you know, seeing if someone was eligible, and if so, helping those higher ups figure out who to choose. Um, a second thing uh, I was doing uh, initially, as a as a very junior army lawyer, was um, citizens of the United States have the right to get a lot of information from our federal government. And the the tool to do that is the Freedom of Information Act. And so, as you might imagine, people are often interested in what the Army is up to presently or what the the Army has been up to in the past. Uh, And so... We weren't the first level of review, but if someone had been denied documents, uh, the office I was in was reviewing those denials to see if they were legit, really, uh, and whether there was a way to release more. And so I was I was doing that. Uh, and the third thing, third main thing I was doing, which I ended up doing much more of in my military career, was treaty-related work. So the, um, the United States of America has treaty relationships with all kinds of countries and and international organizations and the like. And within sort of that definition of the United States, there are defense treaties. And so, um, and sometimes the army is the, the main actor in determining whether we're getting everything out of the treaty that we've bargained for or whether we're doing what we've agreed uh, to do. And, and so I was, I was doing that kind of work too. All right. That's, that's very interesting to me. Okay. All of that, but in an effort to keep this more on your musical, we're going to fast forward about 25 years to Starbucks chief legal counsel. Sure. What on earth does that mean? What was your, I mean, so to me, so here's my interpretation of it, and maybe, and I don't think I'm right, but 
I'll put it out what I think it is. And that so the chief legal counsel for a corporation is the the head lawyer for the for the company who probably right. is overseeing a staff of lawyers who are handling corporate law as needed for the corporation. Yeah, that's pretty good, Scott. Okay. Um, we're going to recap. <laughs> John John Johns Hopkins stalling treaty treaty law. Mm-hmm. Starbucks. Yeah. There's a big gap here. I mean, and I'm teasing. I'm kind of kidding, but it's it's it, it's pretty fascinating to me. How does one's career how does how did you how did you go in that direction? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to truncate what is obviously a much longer story. Right. But um but suffice it to say before I left the military, I I I went from the Pentagon to the White House and I worked in the White House during the Iran Contra investigation as a military officer. And while there, my boss in the White House persuaded me that I would make a really good trial lawyer. And so he uh, that was not on my map uh, before mm-hmm. he planted that seed. And uh, because I had already fallen in love with Seattle, even as a law student after a trip there, he advocated for me uh, to get a job with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle, which I did for five years. Uh, and then I went into private practice in Seattle as a litigator, as a trial lawyer. Uh, that's what I was doing. But I realized, Scott, that wasn't really my calling. I, I needed to be in a situation, whether as a lawyer or not, that was more mission driven than being in a law firm. And I figured if I was going to continue to be a lawyer, that needed to be in-house somewhere inside a corporation or an institution of some sort where not always, but for the most part, people have a North star where they're rowing for the most part in the same direction. And that was not my experience in the law firm. So I, with that seed planted and my spouse helped me plant that seed, I started you know, shopping around and landed at Dell Computer Corporation. We left Seattle. We moved to Austin. We were there five years. It was an amazing experience, educational in many ways, uh, beyond being simply at Dell. Just be- living in Austin, Texas for five years was an eye-opening experience that is tattooed on me. Okay. However, after five years of being in-house at Dell, uh, I, I applied for the Starbucks top job and got it. So that's how I ended up at, at Starbucks, and uh, we moved back to 
Seattle uh, 21 years ago. And, you know, if you think about the Starbucks of 2002, which is the Starbucks I joined, you know, it was still, uh, it, it was still a very, I mean, you know, it had gotten bigger. It was, it was publicly traded, but it was still hugely entrepreneurial and scrappy and, you know, growing like a weed, right? Um, I was there, so, I know. Yeah, yeah. you know, so, so yeah. Scott, you know, that's the company I joined, right? Right. Uh, okay. And the law department I inherited was pretty, um, you know, standard operating procedure in the sense that most of the, it was small, most most of the lawyers were um, from Seattle, law mm-hmm. firms or other Seattle jobs before coming to Starbucks. So one of the things that happened in the decade I was there, as Starbucks became more global, the law department became more global. And if you think about what Starbucks is. I mean, when you really think about what it is, you won't be surprised by what the lawyers were doing and how we spent most of our time. So Starbucks at the end of the day, particularly in the United States, is a real estate company. Most of the stores um, are, are company owned, right? And so, you know, those, <laughs> every single store um, is a negotiation. It's it's a deal between a landlord, you know, and a tenant. And and as Starbucks got bigger, Starbucks was a bigger tenant, and Starbucks could demand more things as a marquee tenant. But nonetheless, it was a tenant. So the real estate team globally at Starbucks was huge. Okay. Um, secondly. Starbucks is a brand, and it it is highly uh, protective of its intellectual property. So a second thing we spent, you know, a lot of time doing was, you know, shutting down, you know, fake Starbucks, you know, be they in China or the Middle East or wherever they were, right? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so we were sort of like, you know, intellectual property, you know, cowboys and girls in, in that sense. Um, the third thing about Starbucks is, you know, most of the people who work at Starbucks are Starbucks employees. So there is, you know, a lot of, and, and back then I suspect it's still true. Um, you know, Starbucks employees are skew very young. So you have, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people now um, who are either in their first job or they are managing people for the first time. And invariably, people who manage people for the first time screw up. So there was always a steady diet of labor and employment issues uh, the legal team 
you know, was dealing with, you know, and then you have the corporate deals. So Starbucks was not, I mean, it's done more acquisitions um, in its later years, but back in the day, Starbucks growth was organic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was, you know, it, it would, you know, cut deals with, you know, grocery stores and airports and, you know, various other things, right? And so there was a, a tremendous amount of deal work uh, that was, yeah. you know, being done too. So there were other things going on, but those were the main things that lawyers for Starbucks were doing. I want to ask you a very specific question that if you know the answer to this, I will be shocked. So I don't expect you to know the answer. This is, this is like the needle in the haystack. Okay. So when I was there and you were there, you may remember because Starbucks, like you said, Starbucks is a brand. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that they would sell in the stores were city mugs, you know, the Seattle city mug. It had artwork about Seattle. They went so far as to like when they started these to like have Olympia and Portland and Spokane mugs, they Olympia, you know, 60,000 people. They, they did a city mug of Olympia. Mm-hmm. And so this first generation of city mugs was kind of in my memory, Starbucks kind of first attempt at selling something at the store that was local yet branded to the global, to the global brand. Mm-hmm. There was, do you remember those mugs by chance? Oh, Definitely. I own okay. several of them. <laughs> okay, good, good. Urban myth, legend, true story, don't know. This is what I'm I'm wondering if you know. So one of the mugs that Starbucks created was for Minneapolis. Hmm. And on it they had a piece uh, a representation of a piece of modern art in Minneapolis. And the story that I was told was that Starbucks didn't get legal permission to use that image. And they were told to remove that mug from the marketplace. That's not ringing a bell at all. I didn't think it would. I would have probably fallen out of my chair if you if you said, oh, yes, I worked on that. Um, I was just curious because I, I collected those mugs. Um, mm-hmm. when I was there, I, I would travel around and, and buy the mugs and I would trade them with people. Um, it, it, and I ended up with a Minneapolis mug <laughs> and I sold that thing on eBay for four figures. Wow. It, because it was, nobody had it. I mean, there was, a you know, this was, it, you know, this is like the Honus Wagner baseball card. You know, it was just it had a story attached to it, whether that story or this, whether that story is true or not. Um, at the time that I sold this, which was 25 ish years ago, you know, wow. uh, no, let's see 23. I probably sold it in yeah, 22, 20, 20 to 25 years ago. I sold it. Um, it was just interesting to me. I would just been really funny if you would have said, Oh yeah, that was one of the first things I worked on was this getting us <laughs> removed from that, you know, that whether that was true or not, I just don't know. Okay. So we now have kind of, you've kind of answered the, the questions I had from our previous conversation that were kind of open ended there that I, I realized I didn't ask you good follow-ups when we talked the first time, but we're going to go back to music now. We're going to, Shift gears back to music because 
to kind of summarize everything, you you went to law, and by the way, you went to law school at Berkeley. So you you left the East Coast, you went to California. So for law school. Yes. You end up at the Pentagon and the White House. Those are, you know, not shabby addresses to call the work <laughs> office. Pretty pretty impressive. Um, we could go down that rabbit hole. I'm sure there's great interesting stories to talk about, but we're gonna skip those because we don't go music. But I got the impression when I when we talked before that during this period of your life, music kind of went into hibernation a little bit. It really did. So what brought music back for you? That's a great, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm happy to share it. So, you know, the first, the first piece of it is why did music leave? I, it, not not the appreciation of music that never left but why did the you know the creation and performance of music leave and there are really two key reasons for that one is i was in a very demanding career oh. and it was taking increasing amounts of my my time and energy and and you know creative bandwidth but the second piece of it uh is i left the catholic church so while i was still catholic i was still creating and performing music for the catholic church i was a member of folk mass choirs wherever I was, whether in Washington, D.C. or Berkeley or or Seattle. Uh, but okay. when I left the church, and I, I left the church because of what I frame as the bedroom issues when I, when I met my wife uh, mm-hmm. and realized that love was at odds with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and I was in love. I left the church. So, um, so with that departure, I was no longer playing uh, in Catholic masses. So both those things were happening, resulting in for a good you know, 10 to 15 years, I didn't touch a guitar, right? So what okay. what brought me back? Um, for almost anyone, um, including me, life is never a straight line. Uh, there, there, <laughs> there, there are, there are curveballs that uh, almost every single one of us breathing must navigate somehow right and that was true for me um back in 2005 my youngest brother's sister i mean my youngest brother's wife and um other members of her family died in a car crash it was the the most horrific thing and my wife and I ended up becoming the legal guardians of my brother's daughter. That's another story. But 
Um, what it also did was um, cause my wife to encourage me to pick up my guitar as a way to grieve. And though I resisted it initially, I relented ultimately. And once I did, Scott, it was the point of no return. Okay. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a flood right out of the blocks. It was sort of like turning a faucet. It trickled and then that that current became stronger and stronger with each passing day. And the hockey stick for me was <laughs> my my wife persuaded me to audition for a one-year program offered by the University of Washington, continuing education in songwriting. And so I I auditioned for that uh, back in 05, uh, not that long after Julie's death, and got accepted. And by by being accepted, I became part of a group of 15 people, a community of songwriters for an entire year. And I'm happy to say a number of those people I first met in 2005 are still in my life. And it was transformative. Uh, At the end of that year, one of my teachers, and it was a mentoring moment, said to me, Paula, I really think you have something with this songwriting and what a shame it would be if you didn't keep going. I didn't know what that meant, Scott. Keep going. I mean, what, you know, I was still Starbucks top lawyer Mm -hmm. with a, you know, hugely demanding job. I, I didn't know what that meant. But what I decided it could mean was one open mic a month doing one open mic in Seattle a month. And that's what I did in uh, 2007, that entire year. Where were you, where were you doing the open mics at? That's a, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. And there were a couple of places that, you know, became, my anchors uh there was one uh, there was a tea place in ballard that no longer exists i think it's it's called mr spots it was called mr spots tea house and uh where was that where where in ballard it was um you know i'm not going to remember the exact street it was on but it was just off the main drag just (laughs) it was (laughs) Uh, and it was there, I have met people, you know, in recent times who've said, I remember you from Mr. Spots. So (laughs) it was a real thing. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, another place, um, I played a lot is near my home, which is, um, in Redmond soul food books. It's a wonderful coffee house slash bookstore that is, I don't know of any 
other place like it um, on on the east side. It really is this countercultural vibe, very warm, inviting place. And and the great thing about and they still do these open mics uh, once a month is they never. There's some open mics where it's very competitive and, and people are, you know, what have you done lately? You know, kind of vibe. But that's not mm-hmm. how Soul Food Books is. It really is a warm, nurturing. People are just so supportive. Uh, and it doesn't really matter if this is your first time on anybody's stage or whether you've been doing this forever, people are going to receive you as community, right? And I loved okay. that because I was I was fledgling back then. And to be in these places like Mr. Spots and Soul Food Books, where these communities were just so, you can do this, just keep going was very important to someone like me. So you started with, you know, open mics. Yes. Obviously, you know, you're known as the Paula Boggs band now, so we know that there's more to this story. But I guess the next, what I'd like to get more detail on is how... And you described it as, as, you know, a hockey stick and a faucet and things like that. So you started off going, just doing one. Chief legal counsel for a multinational corporation, day job. Were you living on the east side then as well? Yes. At that period of time? So yes, you had I to commute from, from Soto to the east side. So that <laughs> that was exhausting in, in and of itself. Absolutely. Um, oh, oh, what a grind. Um, and it's... You know, even back then, that commute wasn't as bad as it is now. <laughs> Just, uh, right. um, but it still was a grind. So you have all these things, but music started taking. You know, it, it sounds to me like music was really taking hold and growing and 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 deepening roots here within you. Yes. What was next? How did you go from you know open mics? What was the next step for you? Sure. So I accomplished my mission of one open mic a month in 07. And along the way, um, differently, but harmoniously, I, I met people who were digging my music and wanted to play music with me. One of them is Tor Diedrichsen, who plays percussion for Paula Bikes Band. Tor and I first met in 2006 or seven, actually. And um, it, it, MySpace was a thing then. And I was, <laughs> I was surfing MySpace and I saw this photo of tour with his conga drums and realized he was in Seattle. And so uh, there was back then 
uh, Starbucks had a rehearsal space uh, for its its partners, its employees, right across the street from uh, Starbucks headquarters, and it was called Soto Pop. It had a, had a, a rehearsal space and Soto Pop. I decided to meet tour for the first time there, but I was scared to death that I had met this guy on the internet. And so I brought one of my Starbucks pals with me who played bass, <laughs> who was tall and big. And uh, he came he came with me uh, to meet tour for the first time. And even to this day, you know, tour will tell people from the stage, yeah, when Paula and I first met, she thought I might be an axe murderer. So she brought this big goon guy with her. (laughs) 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 So, you know, we, we met back then and we were still making music together. Uh, Another original band member, Mark Shannon, I actually met in Hawaii, just a crazy sequence of events, but his day job is he's a law professor at Seattle University, but also plays a mean guitar and over the course of years with our band, plays a mean banjo. So uh, those, you know, there were others who in varying ways, you know, sort of this this makeshift group of people came together uh, so much so that by January of 08, we were playing our first show. And we it was it was at the Triple Door Musicquarium. <laughs> the only reason we got that gig was because Tor Diedrichson was a known quantity to the booker and he vouched mm-hmm. for us and he said, Give this band a chance. I play with them. They're good, you know, please. And they did. And that's how we got our first gig. So that's in 2008. 2008. I'm still with Starbucks. You're still with Starbucks. I get the feeling that there's this internal tension now. Yes. And I can't speak for you because only you know your your journey and your story. But I'm, I'm guessing that, I'm going to guess that your spouse had something to do do with the ultimate decisions just because the way you've mentioned her previously i just yes. i just this is this this is just a hunch i have but you've got this i think you've got this tension because um chief legal counsel international corporation demanding probably very rewarding mm-hmm. probably financially rewarding as well mm-hmm. musicians Sometimes you see them on street corners playing for change. Other times you see them headlining grand, you know, things. But tough road to hoe financially. What what led up to in in our other conversation? You 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 kind of talked about your conversation with with Howard Schultz and and how you actually you rehearsed it and yes. your wife actually played the role of Howard Schultz. <laughs> so that's kind of. <laughs> So I, you know, it was a safe bet for me to say that she was involved, but you, you, you're going through this and you're practicing it. It wasn't just a, you didn't wake up on Monday and walk in and go, thanks, here's my badge. I'm done. It was a a period of months, months. Oh, years. 
years actually yeah. because um right. and there were, there are a couple different themes i think are really important and the first is before i came back to music before i became a starbucks partner employee while i was still at dell dell had been um and it still is but there, it went through a period like a lot of companies did uh in the early 2000s of headwind and it, at that time during the you know sort of the you know y2k fiasco and and all of that dot-com bomb is a term that some of us know um mm -hmm. dell after growing like a weed had the first layoffs in its history scared uh my wife and i tremendously and so we we went to financial advisors way back then and said, look, if Paula gets laid off, if I get laid off, how, what do we need to do to live for a year? What do we need to save? How do we need to restructure our lives now so that we could live? And, you know, at some semblance of our current lifestyle, while Paula looks for another job. And that was that was the assignment, right? And so by the time we left Dell in Austin and came back to Seattle, that's how we lived. That's how that was our mindset. And so this is, you know, a decade before I actually leave uh, mm -hmm. Starbucks. On day one, I had an attitude I'm not, I don't fear being fired. Okay. So I had, I had built, we had built together as a couple, this life that would make it okay. If, if I got fired or I had to leave Starbucks for whatever reason. Right. So that's really important. Um, and throughout my time, throughout the decade, I was at Starbucks before I came back to music. I knew that. And that's okay. important. So a second thing I think, Scott, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll appreciate this, is I was at Starbucks. And uh, at the risk of sounding hokey about it, Starbucks is a special place. At least it was during the time I was there. And one of the things that made it special were the people I was surrounded by. Many of them were artists themselves. So, you know, it, it's a place, or at least it used to be, a place where artists and actors and photographers and musicians and whatever, they, they worked at Starbucks, but they also had these other passions and it was a it, it was a it was a place it i didn't see that at dell that that kind of vibe those kinds of people it's a very emotional product that starbucks is selling coffee people wake up to coffee they romance <laughs> over coffee right you know it's a romantic right. product right and the company attracts a you know, more than its share 
of people who have an artistic bent. So as I, as, as art was reawakening in me, as music was reawakening in me, I had people who were working for me, with me, and even the, the people I was working for were, um, were understanding of this journey I was on and this return to music and were honestly supportive of it in ways that I don't know I would have found at many other companies, honestly. So that too was fuel. Um, you know, mm -hmm. a third thing, and I may have mentioned this the last time we spoke, but if not, it, it, I'll, I'll mention it now. When I had that conversation with Howard Schultz, it was not so long after Steve Jobs died. And mm -hmm. the important thing about that is Howard saw Steve Jobs as a rival, but he also saw a lot of himself in Steve Jobs. And so this notion of you must live each moment as if it is your last. I think it sit it it it, it sat differently with with Howard uh, because of other things that were going on in to you know uh, in 2011. Excuse me, not 20. Mm -hmm. 2011 is when Jobs died, and 2011 is mm -hmm. when I was having that conversation with Howard that I plan to leave the company and and not just the company but leave the practice of law and do mm -hmm. this other thing start this new chapter you're you're absolutely correct you know my memory of starbucks in that era was the island of misfit toys <laughs> in the sense that every, not everybody but a lot of people had secondary creative activities that starbucks their employment at Starbucks allowed them to fund. Yes. And it, yes, people were, there was corporate ladder climbing, mm -hmm. but there was also a sense of creative development and people would take jobs um, laterally because it offered them a creative outlet. Yes. Or a way to, uh, a way to scratch a creative itch that, you wouldn't necessarily have in a traditional corporate environment. And so I don't know that it's like, I, I, my, my assumption is that the, the company's not like that as much in 2023. Um, but it was in 1999 in 2005 and you know, things like that. It, it, it was uh, that way. Um, so you made the leap you you left you left corporate and you left law and so now you are a musician and you your first show you know it was weird. one of the questions i asked you last time is like you know where, where's your favorite place to play as a, as a musician in, in washington and your answer was the triple door and then you say well that's also where i played my first show and i'm just kind of like 
really. Um, you, but you, you also told the story of how you, you guys, it's, you know, you knew somebody who vouched for you and, and he's in the band and it, it worked and all of that. So now the Paula Boggs band is an entity you're performing. Uh, when we talked last, uh, your, your album Janice had just came out. I think it was coming out. I th- you think your first single was out. That's right. The album release, I think was in April mm-hmm. of 22. When we talked the other day, you alluded that there's a new album in the works. Yes. Okay. So what I want to kind of touch on here is since we last talked, so let's say from March of 22 to to October of 23, one of the other things that you mentioned was that we were, like I said earlier, we were coming out of the cave from the pandemic, if you will. And so what are you seeing as a musician, as a performer now, when you're, when the band is performing live, are, are the audiences getting larger? Are, are more people coming out to see music in your experience? Yeah, it, it, it depends. Uh, okay. We, we just did a show in Snoqualmie, Washington, and it was, it was a little venue, but it was packed and people were having a great time. They were dancing, they were tipping well. It was, <laughs> you know, the, this incredibly joyous uh, experience. But a month and a half ago, we were in Portland, Oregon, and barely anyone was there, right? So we, we, we've seen both. Uh, during this this period from April 2022 to now, uh, we uh, I think we were just short of selling out the Triple Door earlier this year, which has a 250 person capacity. I mean, it it felt packed, uh, and we we definitely had over 200 people there um fall i mean summer of 2022 we were in westport connecticut at levitt pavilion and there were over a thousand people on the lawn in front of us so it really it really depends on the place the time you know what's what's happening i think uh, some people, I think the band is becoming better known and people, um, more people know who we are and like what we do. So that's a, that's a great thing. I think right. there are still people who are concerned about being in crowds and, you know, Unfortunately, COVID is having, you know, a, an uptick in some places yep. and people are mindful of that, uh, particularly if they have, if they are immunocompromised in some way. And so we, we're still dealing with that uh, reality. One of the things that I've always thought was a little curious about your band, I'll go look on your website and I'll see you're performing it. 
X, Y, and Z. And like, I don't have your website up in front of me right now, but I believe sometime in the month of October, you're, you're heading to California for a, a handful of shows. Yes. You just, you just mentioned, and then you're going to Yakima on November 11th. Yes. Um, I know because I have to buy tickets for that one. That's how I know. Um, because that's fairly, fairly close to me. And it's a great little venue that you're playing out there. Yeah. So, and then, but you just mentioned Connecticut. So I don't understand. Well, I don't, I don't understand. How are you booking shows? And what I mean by that is a lot of like local bands stay local. They don't tour. And it seems like you, you kind of make these forays down south or east what's how are you guys doing that what how are you pulling that off yeah well there there are there are some venues like uh philadelphia's world cafe live we've we've played probably five times now so you know when we when we come to philadelphia we actually we actually you know have we have a following because we've right. we've played that venue several times um there um there's a there's a venue in new york city we've rockwood music hall we've also played that venue i don't know four times something like that one of the one of the ways we're able to book these places and and come back to them because people show up <laughs> you know right you, right you know I, you know sometimes a venue is going to take a chance on a band but you got to produce right and so Absolutely. a lot of these venues for us are are repeats because people show up and i think people show up for a combination of reasons one is and the best one of course is that people have discovered us and like what we do um i speak across the country and so sometimes it's because people have heard me speak they know i'm a musician and when they see that i'm playing in their town they show up um sometimes Got they're it. just showing up because they're curious. It's like, what is this about? And hopefully they're pleasantly surprised. And, you know, other times they, they really have checked us out, but it's because they first heard me speak. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a third cohort of people, I think, who, um, who um, know of me because of... Mm -hmm my past career. Uh, and so when they see I'm coming, you know, to town, they, you know, they show up too. Okay. All right. Where, where are people? F so you and I are of an age where you, you, you mentioned Europe, you know, top 40 pop music radio played a big influence in, in who, who made it and who didn't, if you, if you could, get on the airwaves, um, you, you could make it. Um, if you couldn't crack the radio, you didn't. Where's, where are people finding 
the Paula Boggs band music these days? How, how do you get the music out? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. We have been very fortunate to, um, capture the imagination of some some very important and and long-standing public radio slash college radio uh djs and some of them are here and and some of them are in other places in in the united states and they consistently play our music, particularly when we've got something new uh, to okay. to offer, uh, and we're I'm very grateful for that cohort of uh, Paul Bond's band gets virtually zero play on commercial radio. Any radio, right. I mean- yeah, any radio airplay we get is coming in the form of community public college radio. I mean, like 99.9% of it. Right. (laughs) Um, And so we were very grateful. Uh, And, and, uh, and over the course of years, we've been able to do a number of in-studio performances at you know at some of these places and the, these public radio stations are across the United States right so okay. that that has been great we have a pretty uh, healthy social media presence mm-hmm. uh, so that is helpful uh, to us and we are a touring band you know and so mm-hmm. people come to, I mean, invariably, I will meet people at a show who came to that show because of the venue, not because of us per se, but they, you know, they trust the venue. They, they trust Mm -hmm. the curatorial voice of the venue and, and by so doing, they discovered us. right? Right. And, and so we have the, the good fortune of gaining fans that way too. Okay. How about streaming services? Um, are you, you, are you cashing those big Spotify checks? <laughs> and <laughs> You know, for what no, I mean, reason, you know, Spotify, I mean, it's one of those things, Scott, where you got to do right. Spotify, right? Right. But, for whatever reason, our band hasn't gained a lot of traction on Spotify. YouTube is a different story Interesting. In, entirely. Okay. I mean, our our YouTube following is, is maybe, I don't know, not quite 10 times the following of, of Spotify. Wow. But, okay. but it, I mean, it, it is sizably larger okay. uh than than spotify and i you know it, it, and perhaps it it's for i mean there's certain platforms that work better for certain bands i guess right. i mean we sure. have an okay following on 
Instagram, but our following on Facebook is several times larger, right? Um, Interesting. Okay. Our, yeah. our following on Twitter is about the same as as our Facebook following. So those are both, you know, if I think about the platforms where we do best, for whatever reason, it's 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 now I guess now X. Twitter, formerly right. known as Twitter, and um, and Facebook, and I think, at least on the Facebook piece of it, perhaps it's true for the Twitter piece too. People are better able to engage with us uh, on on Facebook, and it, you know, actual right. conversations take place, and we're able to say more on the Facebook mm-hmm. platform, and, and other people are able to say more, uh, on that platform. And so we're, you know, we're a band of storytellers. So I think perhaps that's why that platform works. And perhaps that's why YouTube works better for us than, than Spotify too. Well, let's, we're gonna, I want to wrap this up. I have some questions I want to ask you, but before I ask you the specific questions, new album, Yes. On the horizon? Yes. How how close how close are we? I'm writing for that album now. We okay. will uh record it next May in Portland. Okay. With Tucker Martin, who produced our last album, Janice. And okay. uh I'm really excited about it. Well, that's that's so far off on the horizon that I can't ask you any really specific questions yet because a lot could change between the next six months. So that's exciting, though. So you're you're going to go in the studio, yes, in May. Okay. Uh, performances for the band, uh, like I mentioned earlier, you're doing this little little jaunt down to California, and then you're playing a show in Yakima. What's uh, are you going to go? Are you guys going on the road anywhere else in the near future? You know, as we as we gear up for recording this fifth album, um, a lot of our bandwidth is in early 2024 is going to be devoted to honing those songs and getting right. them uh, studio ready. You know, because you know we want we want to hit the ground running when we get to the studio and be as you know as creative as possible but also as efficient as right. as we can be because time is money right right <laughs> among other exactly. things um but having said that we are already in conversation with um local venues for that first quarter of 2024 mm-hmm. and we'll be announcing um shows for that you know for that quarter uh very soon and we're, okay. we're very Excellent. excited about that and most of those will be in you know western washington right sure. uh and nobody comes to eastern washington you guys just <laughs> avoid us just kidding. just kidding no we really do want to return it's been many years now since we were last, well, actually, that's not true. We were just in the Tri-Cities 
um, over Labor Day, we um, we were a um, a headliner for the Tumbleweed Festival oh, uh, in Richmond, okay. and had a you know okay. had a wonderful time there. So yeah, we we we've been. We've been to Eastern Washington, and, uh, and we we want to go even more east. We just uh, it's been a while. Okay, all right. Well, I've got some questions here that I ask my. I've asked you a couple of these questions before, so we're going to see if things have changed. Okay. You and I both worked at Starbucks. I know you drink coffee. Do you remember what you told me you were drinking last time we talked? I must have said Komodo Dragon. No, you did not. Really? Did I? You were did talking. I say Cafe you, Misto? Was no, I, you were mixing Pete's and Starbucks. Well, I, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to know if you were still doing that. <laughs> I I, I, I went and I tried that. I tried that, so and it's there. really quite good. I like it. I like it. I'm too lazy to do it regularly, but it was a, it was a, it was a, it was, it was good. So you were blending Starbucks French roast with Pete's major Dickinson and about 50, 50 ratio. It's, it's really, it's a really good cup of coffee. Yeah. So I'm coming over to Seattle. Where's a great place for me to go get coffee around you? Where, where, where are you, where are you frequenting these days? Any, any place you want to recommend? Ah, you know, Honestly, and you know, and I think this is a a byproduct of of COVID. I mean, most of the coffee I drink is 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 coffee made here at right at home. So yeah, but I'm not going to show up to your house, knock on the door, and ask for a cup of coffee. That's just bad manners. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just you can get a bad great manners. cup of coffee at Soul Food Books in Redmond. Soul food books. You're going to say that for coffee. Okay. Great music. Great coffee. All right. Once again, I'm going to show up to the the east side area of Seattle around lunchtime. I'm always looking for a good place for lunch. Got any recommendations for me there? Because I'm not showing up to your house for lunch either. I mean, it's just rude. (laughs) You know, there, um, there are a number of really cool places on the east side, uh, but there's a, Gosh, I'm I'm blanking, I'm blanking on the name of it. But there's a there's a wonderful, um, you know, farm to table restaurant in Redmond on Redmond Way, and um, if you can, <laughs> with <laughs> that level of information, find it. Uh, it is amazing. <laughs> I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes. All right. I will. All right. So we're down to the last two questions. Okay. One last question or the second to last question. What didn't I ask you this time that we probably should have talked about? Anything that we overlooked this, this, this go around? I'm writing a memoir. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, he says. Tell, tell me more. Tell us more. Yeah. So I'm, I, I have completed a second draft. I have, uh, I've had a memoir coach uh, from mm-hmm. uh, Hugo House uh, in Seattle, uh, Anastasia Renee, and Hugo House continues to be a great 
resource for me. It really is an amazing institution, literary institution here in Seattle, offering classes and mentoring and workshopping for writers. And I've, I've been a beneficiary of all of that. So I'm, okay. I'm excited about getting to a point where I can shop this thing to publishers. And I, I'm probably a couple months off from that, but uh, okay. I'm, I'm in the zone, Scott. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a gr- I'm glad you brought that up. I had no, not, I had no awareness of that. So otherwise I would have brought it up, but I think that's fat. Fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. All right. You ready for the last question? Sure. I didn't ask you this one before. This is a new one. All my guests must answer this. So first off, you have to answer it and you have to give me the complete answer that I'm asking for. Okay. Okay. So I want you to listen to the question and then you need to answer it. All right. Cake or pie and why? Ah, uh, pie. Why? One of the songs I'm, I, I have, um, I have written in uh that will be on this new album uh is is called uh making hay and there's a making hay. there's okay. a there's a there's a lyric <laughs> there's a there's 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 a lyric in that song that says um i sing ain't smart enough to know the math behind pie <laughs> okay. All right. So, all right. That's why I'm 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 choosing pie. <laughs> You're choosing pie. All right. One follow-up question. What type of pie? Well, that pie is PI. I know. But <laughs> but if I, know. I have to choose but, a pie to yeah. eat? Yeah. Oh. It's 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 going to be it's going to be lemon meringue pie. Solid. <laughs> Solid choice. Okay. Why? Why lemon meringue? Well, you know, a, a close second would be key lime, actually, depending on the day. But there's something about the the tartness of those two flavors that do something otherworldly for me. <laughs> You will get no pushback from me on those choices. Those are, those are remarkably good choices. Um, yeah, those are solid. I, I, I mm, yeah, lemon meringue's right there for me. I, I do like a good strawberry pie because uh-huh. I, I just remember as a kid, my grandmother took me to Bob's Big Boy restaurant, and and they had these what seemed like to a seven year old, these giant slices of strawberry pie that were, you know, and that was very, a very rare treat for me. If I were to try it now, I probably wouldn't like it, but as a, as the seven year old Scott really thought it was cool. Um, and so that's, that is stuck with me through all these years. Strawberry pie is kind of like the elusive Holy grail. And as an adult man, I can get strawberry pie whenever I want, but I still 
think of it as unobtainable. But lemon meringue is, is, yeah. Yeah. My mother loves lemon meringue and I grew up with that. My father hated it, hated lemon. My mother loves, loves it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm full on in camp lemon meringue. That's a, that's a really solid choice. Paula, thank you so much for taking even more of your time this time to sit down with us and share more of your story. I think what you're doing is encouraging. I think what you're doing creatively is amazing. I love your music. And I am really looking forward to seeing you in the band perform in Yakima later, almost a month from now. Um, assuming that the weather holds for us to get from Wenatchee to Yakima. Uh, you know, it's early enough in winter, we should be fine. But uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear the fifth album when it comes out. And I will be getting a copy of your memoir when you when you publish it as well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. I'm, I'm just thrilled every time you reach out. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me on Twitter at Explore Law State. I'd love to hear your comments. You can also visit our website at explorewashingtonstate.com. If you know anyone who would like the show, it'd be amazing if you'd share the show with them. This is the biggest way that we grow this show. Good old word of mouth. Glad you were here with me today, and I hope to have you listening to the next episode. See you then.